0: One of my favorite parts of jumping into a movie or a book or a new television show is um, what would be considered the, the who's going with me um, in the movie. The hero's journey is filled with a couple of different scenes, and one of those scenes is when your team is being assembled. Like, I love that in the story. I love when you find out who's going to be in this one for the long run. I mean, you got movies that are completely built around... Who's going with this person on their journey of transformation? Uh, Avengers, Justice League, Greatest Showman, all of these movies are built around the group of people that go with them. I mean, it's, it's super popular in TV and in books and in writing. Uh, we, the ones that are those isolated individuals going on the journey, those are good. We like that, you know, like the man versus nature. He's by himself out in the woods, and he has to figure out how to survive. But But like the who's going with is a great... Great thing. Like, I knew people when Lost came out who actually wanted to be on an island with a smoke monster and the others because they felt so connected to the characters. Like, I'm like, you will die on that island. I don't care. There's community there. I love it. I love it. You know? Like, Seinfeld, when it was out, like, I wanted a crazy neighbor. Let me tell you, friends, you don't want a crazy neighbor. Um, Not as cool, uh, you know, as as it looks like on Seinfeld. But there's something about the journey that we love seeing the team assembled. And as the team is assembled, you come to learn what makes those characters unique in the journey. Like... You go, Superman, strong, leader, you know, the Flash, comic relief. I mean, all of these different elements about them. You've got the, the, the Chewbacca's who are the faithful companions. You've got the Elaine Bennesses who are the fiery attitude that you love. You've got the, the Ross from Friends who's this whiny guy. And you've got all of this stuff that, that stands out about these characters. So the assembling of the team and you learn about them on the journey. In the very same way, in Luke's gospel, I love how he pays attention to such great detail, and he allows us to see who's going with Jesus, but then Jesus actually tells us what will mark these people. What will be the characteristics of those that go with Jesus? What will be the markings? How will you know that we have been with Jesus? What is going to set them apart from all the other characters in the world What will make the the followers of Jesus unique? And, and, And Luke does this very easily for us to see. And it causes us to go, well, do these things mark my life? Because you'll know who you're going with by what's coming out of your life. And so we see that Jesus has been touring the countryside. He's been proclaiming the good news. And it's in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is actually uh, He hasn't really assembled the team yet. He's met some of the disciples. He's called some of these people. He hasn't named them the apostles yet. And so he's journeying and he's doing these healing things. And he escapes to this, this secluded place, and all the people find him, and they're like, oh, Jesus, just stay with us. Stay in this one area, okay? Keep doing what you're doing, but don't go anywhere. Anywhere. And Jesus actually tells us a little bit about why He came in Luke chapter four. He says, "I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent." So if people like to tell you why Jesus does what Jesus does or what Jesus came to do, and it doesn't line up with what Jesus actually told us He came to do, you might want to go, "I don't know that He said he was came to do that." There are a couple of things he makes very clear as to why He came. And one of those is to preach the good news of the kingdom. And so that should stir a whole bunch of questions in our minds, going, what is the kingdom like? What is the kingdom? I don't understand the kingdom. How does that work? The rest of the Gospels unfolds that beautiful announcement. And so as he has been healing sick people, he's been telling parables, he's actually met a few of the disciples along the way, He, he, he goes to a mountaintop and he hangs out all night because he has a rather large decision to make. So let's just read it. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. One day, soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples, and he chose 12 of them. So that meant there were more up there. Okay? So he chose 12 of them to be apostles. Here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter. Andrew, Peter's brother. James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. So Jesus has an incredibly important decision to make. He is gathering his disciples. Now, for those of you that don't, there is a difference between the disciples and the Apostles. Jesus had many disciples. In fact, you and I, if we are learners of Jesus, or if we're looking at Jesus and learning everything that he says and does, you and I look in that role of disciple. Um, there's a tattoo artist in town that I was talking with, and I just asked him, how'd you get into this? Like, it's not, it's not the normal canvas to draw on human flesh, so how do you, how do you get into that business? And he told me, he was like, it was the craziest story, man. There was an artist and I wanted to be, I wanted to work in his group. I want to work with his company and it was out of his house. And so I knocked on his door cold. It's like, I'm an artist and I want to work with you. I want to do what you do. I want to, I want to. And the guy said, get out of here with more explicitives. And I was like, so did you leave? He goes, no, I slept on his porch until he let me in. And when he let me in, he let me sweep. It was amazing. You know, i like, you're going, this is crazy. But this is what he wanted. He wanted to sit under this tattoo artist and learn from him and do whatever it takes to be like him. But this instance where Jesus calls all the disciples together, they're all there. He points 12 of them, apostles. He is announcing this new kingdom and he's going, these are the guys, for better or for worse, that I am going to send out. Anoint, put put this is your this is your commissioning. This is why you're here. This is what you're going to do. And he's setting them apart from the disciples, the twelve apostles, the twelve being reflective of the twelve tribes of Israel. In the same way in the New Testament, God is establishing a new nation built on the twelve men that He would send out with this great task to accomplish. He's setting up a new kingdom, a new nation, and these men happen to be the ones that he would build it upon. There's a much broader picture painted by the names that are listed. And I know, here's the deal, guys. I know my tendency to fly over lists in the Bible. If you're doing any personal Bible reading, chances are you skip over the names, don't you? You just do. It's just like what we do. Give me the good stuff. Jesus, I want the good stuff. Those are just names. Friends, the lists are in the scriptures for a reason, and they teach us so much. They teach us so much about who we are and about how God works. One of the interesting things is that Jesus takes this to his father first. He doesn't Google the names of these men. He doesn't Facebook stalk these men. He doesn't send them an invite on LinkedIn so he can see what their profile looks like. He takes them to the father. I guess I have to ask. I mean, I do. I have to ask. Do you? I and mean, when you have major decisions to make, hey, Facebook. I gotta make these major parenting decisions. I'd rather hear from parents who are imperfect like me. So tell me your advice. But have we taken it to the Lord? I don't know. Are we quicker to Google a topic than we are to take it to the Lord? Are we quicker quicker to, to find things out via the internet? I mean we have information at the touch of a button. You'd think we would be the happiest country in the world because we have all the information in the world. We're miserable aren't we like we are and it's amazing how if jesus is going to go spend all night in prayer before his father before he makes a major decision i'll throw up a 30 second look your way god i got this huge business deal 30 second prayer god bless me and my efforts here we go but how serious do we take it how serious do we believe that the lord would actually give us the wisdom that we need he actually says he will he says if you're lacking in wisdom ask i'm generous have you taken advantage of that generosity i don't know that i do the way i that he's asked us to so jesus prays all night and there, this this apostle call this and if you want to read how it went just read the book of acts it's luke part two that's really what it is it's him telling the story of what Jesus did with these 12 men and sending them out. They spend time with Jesus. They learn from Jesus. They do what Jesus does. He sends them out. They come back. They process. And then he says, I'm out. It's on you. (laughs) For better or for worse, I'm out. It's on you. But thanks be to God that we are here today. I mean, had they failed, we wouldn't be here. But because they said, Jesus, you are most precious to us. We are here You and I are here on the backs of men who were convinced Jesus is who he says he is. All 11 of these 12 died martyrs' deaths. In the book of Acts, when Judas is replaced, also he died as well for this cause, that Jesus is the Son of God. We are here because those men, as common as they were, and as common as you'll find out historically they are, God did some very uncommon things, as Mr. West just sold us. But this list does matter. And I know for some of you being skeptical, but I thought Jesus prayed and Judas? Really? Like, was he that good of a decision maker if Judas still did what he did? I mean, come on, he's God, right? He should have known, right, that Judas would have betrayed him. So why pick Judas? You're right. Verse I want you to know that Jesus knew Judas would betray him. It actually is discussed in John chapter 6. There are disciples walking away from Jesus because of how difficult the call was that Jesus was saying, you're going to give your life to this. And there were people going, I'm out. I'm out. And Jesus is looking around and he's like, who are you going to leave to? And they're kind of like, where will we go? But in John chapter 6, starting in verse 63, Jesus is announcing this and he says, the spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe. And he knew who would betray him. Now a couple of reasons that Judas's name on this list matters is Jesus knew God's plan. And Jesus' commitment to the Father's plan was way more important than assembling a super talented squad of players. Jesus knew that from the very beginning, from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning, from cover to cover of the scripture, that the plan was God's. And he was more committed to that than he was to going, oh man, I don't want to be known as the guy who picks people who betray him. See, in the Old Testament, there's what's called prophecy. And when it comes to Jesus in particular, there are little windows that people are starting to get about what the rescuer will look like. And there are a bunch of details about where he'll be born, who he'll be born to, what will he be like, what will he go through, what will he suffer, announcements hundreds of years before Jesus even walks on the earth. Now, one of those announcements is in Psalm, Psalm 41, even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food has turned against me. Jesus knew the scripture. Inside and out. Like I do wonder if when Jesus called out Judas Iscariot, if he was like, Judas Iscariot. Like knowing what he knew. Or if he was like, Judas Iscariot. I know the Father's plan and I love that so much. I'm so excited about meeting you, Judas. I'm gonna shake your hand, Judas. Maybe. Maybe he was, but because he was not concerned about a spotless team. In fact, there are no spotless teams. There are no spotless teams. And the scripture is full of unlikely people being used to do unlikely things like the most disqualified people you would think God going, it's not about how qualified you are. And I think some of us have this mentality that it's about qualifications that we can bring to the table. And if you read this list, you are going to be astounded. Some of you might be offended at the names found on this list. Judas on this list is also, for those of you who are skeptical about the Gospels, I do believe evidence for that supports the Gospels include Judas' name on this list. If you're interested in perpetuating a lie then you cover up the untidiness of a betrayer in your midst. If you're promoting Jesus is the Son of God and he picked wrong, you cover that up, right? There's nothing to cover up. He didn't pick wrong. He cared greatly about that list. And the apostles and the writers of the Gospels had nothing to cover. It was this is how it went down. I know there are some of you in this room who are still questioning the validity of the text. I want you to know the argument isn't for the validity of the gospel text. Evidence that supports that we have in our hands what was intended to be in our hands is there. What you're questioning is the sufficiency of the text. Is it enough to build my life upon? This is where we spend our time. I know for those of you that have questions about, can I trust the Gospels? Yes, you can can do all the research. The research is there. We are saturated in evidence that would support the text that we are reading from this morning. Where our hearts become involved is do I actually believe that it's enough for me? This is where we turn. This is where the Gospels begin to address and to make large declarations that our human hearts and our human pride and our human arrogance love to contend against. Judas' name on this list points to the trustworthiness of the gospel, whether or not you know it. This speaks to the bigger picture of who Jesus lets come close. Judas being a liar, doubters in the group, skeptics in the group, hiding sin in the group. Jesus is like, come one, come all. You're coming close. And if you consider who he called, seven of them, roughly seven fishermen, one money grubber, four whose jobs were so insignificant that they weren't even mentioned. It has everything to do with Jesus saying, I'm calling you. It has nothing to do with them going, look at me. It was them, Jesus saying, I'm I'm calling you. Paul makes mention to this when he's dealing with the church in 1 Corinthians. He says this in verse 26 of chapter 1. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think They are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by this world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to to nothing what the world considers important as a result. And I love this because God knows what we're like. He knows our hearts. No one can ever boast in the presence of God. Even the personalities of the disciples were so different. I mean, I know there's some of you in this room who you can't stand being around those God and country Christians, can you? Like those God and country people, those God and country people. Do you know that there was a zealot that was a part of the disciples group? Now, we don't know if he was zealous over the um, overthrow of a Roman government, a corrupt Roman government, to the point of violence. Or we don't know if that means he was zealous about God's law. Either way, he's one of those intense personalities, And we love being around intense personalities, don't we? Like, we love it. That's like our favorite thing, right? We love being around hot-headed people, right? That's our favorite thing, right? Well, you got Sons of Thunder hanging around. We love being around money-grubbing people, don't we? You got Matthew, who's like, I'm a greedy tax collector. You got people who are doubters and skeptics who are like, I doubt that. I doubt that. We love being around that, don't we? This is who Jesus put together in the mystery van. Like... This is it. This is who's going on this trip. Congratulations. This is the beautiful thing about the church is that people who would naturally be enemies and not get along Jesus causes to be friends in this kingdom. And if you have a problem with different personalities, you're really going to hate his kingdom. If you want a country club, you can have that. But if you want the kingdom, you're going to meet some of the most frustrating people on the planet. And it is because of the Spirit of God that we are able to go, I love you like a brother. I love you like a sister. We're a family. Yeah, and you don't see everything eye to eye that I do, but Jesus, right? We're good? Yeah, yeah, Jesus. (laughs) He's what we got. This is a beautiful descriptor found in this list that we may just jump over as we read through it. The disciples, all standing there on that mountaintop, and Jesus calls out. He says, you're the twelve. Now see, this is just where I kind of do some adding or like looking at this from a creative perspective. Like I do wonder, as the twelve were being called out, if they were like, yes, you know, like, When they hear their name called, did they be like, "Yeah," you know, or they look at their buddy, they're like, "Yeah," you know, do this little wink at you, winking a gun, and I'm here. I'm like, "Yeah, what's up, brother? Ha ha! Look at y'all standing over there." You know, when we do dodgeball, that's what we do, right? We get picked first. We're like, "Yes, I'm not last. Yes, I'm one of the twelve. Yes," and I can see it. I can see it crystal clear that Jesus starts moving away from them. Heading back down the mountain, and they're all like, Yes, and they're high-fiving each other, and they're like, What? Yeah! And they're walking with Jesus and they're saying goodbye and they're looking over, and the next thing you know, they are swallowed up by a crowd of miserable people. You still glad you got chose? The very next thing is those 12 walking down the mountain into a large crowd of tortured, tormented, hurting, broken, deathly ill, sinful, wicked people, and they are swallowed up by that crowd. I take it back, Jesus! Like, I don't want to go there. Those people are gross still glad? You still high-fiving? I hope you are. See, their position in life was changing. Don't get me wrong. The apostles' positions in life was changing. It was just changing into that of a servant of all. Jesus was saying, you 12 men will be called to first pour out your lives. How's that? Still glad? Still high-fiving? Still like, yeah! Yeah! Rock and roll! Or are you having second thoughts? Many had second thoughts. Not only did Jesus let us know who was going with him and that these men, their posture and their position would change in life, definitely. But not to one of power, but to one of service. He tells us what they will be like. In Luke chapter 6, he turns and he looks at all the disciples, not just the 12 apostles, and he looks at all the crowd that's standing around, and these are the words that they are going to hear. In Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20, then Jesus turned to the disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you know, because you follow the Son of Man? When that happens, be Happy, Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets that same way. What sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have only your your happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds." their ancestors also praised false prophets. Blessings and sorrows. Luke's gospel is unique in that he records Jesus's woe to you. And anytime you see Jesus say, woe to you, pay attention. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, and if he speaks to the only things that bring us life, and he prefaces something with woe to you, that's not good. So pay attention when you hear Jesus say woe to you. Because Jesus is not all rainbows and skittles. He's not. He's not going to give you this false sense of you've got it all. You're great. You've got everything you need. No. He's very serious about what leads us to life and what leads us to death. And if he starts with woe to you, pay attention. Luke's gospel is unique in that he allows us this window into what Jesus sees as important. Most Jewish families thought blessing... When they thought the word blessing, what comes to mind when you think of blessing? Money, large healthy families, long life, full barns, enemies under your thumb, right? That's what, that's what most Jewish people thought of when they heard of God's blessing. Now in the Old Testament, for fair game, this was part of the covenant. If you will be my people, and as I, your God, you will live blessed. But what's happening when Jesus steps on the scene is he's actually making the people of Israel grow up. See, I don't know if you've experienced this as parents, but there's like this process that you go through with your kids. The first process is rewards and consequences, right? As a parent, you teach your kid, you do this, you get good, you do this, there's consequences. That's how you do this, this whole parenting thing. But there are stages of our why we do what we do. So yes, you teach consequences, you teach rewards. But then there comes a point when a kid just gets it around his head that he has to do his chores. And that's the kind of the mentality they walk with, like... I have to do my chores. Like, I have to. Like, they get the reward consequence thing already. That's been established. They know. But then they're kind of like, I have to do my chores. Every Saturday around my house, I have to do my chores. Like, that's where we're at. But there comes a point in maturity when you begin to go, I just want to do my chores because I'm a part of this family. Like, I want to be a part of this because I love my parents, I love my family, I want to do this thing. I don't know if that ever really happens in life, but the point is, as you get older, you start to go, I want to do these things because I love my family. I want to do these things, I want to serve my my wife, I want to love my wife, I want to do these things. There's There's this progression, and Jesus is actually calling the nation of Israel to grow up. It's not just about the physical. He's actually turning this thing around and going, no, there is something more important than having physical blessing. It is a rich relationship with God. It is a rich relationship and journey with the Father who loves us most. And as he steps in on the scene, I am sure of it, that the disciples were probably thinking, what's in it for us? Right? Right? What's in it for us? Like we've given all this stuff up, we've given these things away, we've stopped doing this and this and this, and we're we're journeying with you. And and Jesus is saying, Your blessing. Your blessing is the kingdom of God. Like he goes into it, he talks about this this whole poor this imagery of being poor and without now, granted. Some of the disciples had given up everything to follow Jesus. So they were physically poor. They left everything, and they were walking around with Jesus, a homeless man, without. But Jesus isn't just pointing to whether we have much or we have little in this life. He's actually pointing to the posture of our heart. Because look, I know people who have nothing that are the most prideful people in the world. And I know people that have everything who are the most humble people in the world. It is not about having and have not. Here's the thing. If being poor was the blessing, Jesus would never have tried to alleviate people of being poor. Jesus would have never tried to speak to them and bring them out of poverty and help them and give Christians the idea of, hey, wait, we should be a part of helping people and alleviating the stress of poverty on people's shoulders. It's not about having or having not. It's about a posture before God. And it's recognizing that even if I have it all, I do not have it all before the Father. Even if I have everything I could possibly want, I do not have all that I need before God. I am lacking and I am needy. And friends, this is the most important issue when it comes to the kingdom of God. Will you come poor before the Lord? Will you come acknowledging that there is desperate need, and I have tried, and I have worked, and I have made efforts, and I have driven, and I have worked hard, but I cannot do this without you. For the kingdom to be mine, I cannot earn it. I cannot show you a resume. I cannot hold up this list. I can't do any of those things. I don't have it together in myself to make any of these decisions. I must have You. The beautiful thing about this is that the kingdom belongs to those. As simply as I can put it, the kingdom belongs to people who will come before the Lord needy. I am poor before you, Lord. I have nothing. And if I don't have you, it's over. The next two promises for the hungry to be filled and the weeping to rejoice... Those are future promises because there is a much of life that we feel ourselves going, man, I'm still hungry. And that doesn't mean that I don't know the Lord. It just means that there's this, I have to be satisfied by you. And there's this con- this, this constant like, I know where the fountain is and I got to keep going to that fountain. And if I don't go to that fountain, I find myself dry. I find myself hungry. If I don't keep going, I got to keep going because then if I don't, I'll start filling myself with other things that do not satisfy. And so the G- Jesus goes to this promise of future filling, this promise of future laughter, because there is a lot to mourn in this life. There's a lot of mourning that goes on in us. And Jesus is saying, I promise you, there will be one day all of that turns. Justice will be dealt, abuse will come to an end, neglect will no longer be a thing. Orphans and, and 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 being alone and isolation will come to an end because you will know it in its fullest sense. You will be in the presence of God. That that one that you have looked on by faith, you will one day see by sight. And in that day, you will be filled, and your mourning turns to laughter. But that's all because we're already experiencing the kingdom. The kingdom that he promised, he made available. He made readily available to those that would come poor in spirit. Jesus is not saying that poverty, starving, weeping, persecution are the blessing. It's not what he's saying. If he did, if that was the point, then we would not be working towards any of these things that Jesus asked us to. The blessing is is coming when you and I hunger for God more than anything else in this life. Persecution comes because Jesus faced it regularly. And here's the deal, friends. When you're willing to be persecuted for the name of Christ, that means that something has moved from warm, fuzzy feelings down into the deepest convictions of who you are. When you're willing to take a position or a stance on something that Jesus has called as life-giving... Versus life taking and you're willing to take all the storm that comes with it. It means that it has moved from Jesus being your warm and fuzzy, your best friend, your chicken soup for your soul, to your deepest conviction. Like, I love the kingdom of God more than the popularity of men or women or Facebook or Instagram or anything else. Because we suffer for the things we love. We do. You do it every day. You suffer for the things you love. And Jesus is saying, for my name's sake, you will face persecution. He did not pull punches. He did not avoid that topic. He actually said, you're blessed when you do. Because you're in good company. Because your ancestors they rejected those that god sent to he also motivated them understanding that god's reward is better than ours and i want you to know he's not talking about salvation so if you're willing to face persecution if you're willing to be to be this person who takes the beating for christ's sake that does not earn you salvation i want you to know that salvation is a gift it can't be earned But the reward of the Father is greater than the reward of man. I'm looking at all that the world sets before me and I'm going, man, his kingdom is so much greater than anything that the world has to offer. So why would I settle? Why would I look to those other things? When you're convinced that something is true, you speak and you go, you love and you respond in the way that reflects that I believe this is true. You're not swayed by popular opinion. Especially if the conviction that Jesus is the Son of God is what stirs us. See, as he's speaking to the disciples and he's speaking to the crowd, they're going to have to process this. They're going to have to go, What do I love the most? And for those who are convinced the kingdom of God is theirs, persecution, Enduring rejection, enduring slandering, enduring hurtful words, enduring isolation and being kicked out of things. And look, I just want to make sure we're clear that we're not being persecuted for being jerks. If you're being persecuted because you're being a jerk, that's on you. But friends, I am telling you, because of our stance on life, as Jesus says, it does happen... You will be laughed at. You will be mocked. You will be painted as an enemy. Not because you've done any injustice, but because of the name of Jesus. It comes with the territory. High five. I'm called. He set me apart. We wish we could stay on the mountaintop with just us and Jesus. But as soon as he calls you, he sends you back down into the crowds. Who's going with him? And what will they be like? Jesus' woes are recorded for us. The crowd would have had to wrestle with it. But wait a minute, you're telling me that having all the money in the world and having a fat belly and having popularity is not the goal in life? I thought it was. But then this Jesus guy shows up and he starts flipping things upside down and it doesn't make me happy. It makes me angry. It makes me mad to think I've lived my whole life chasing those things and this guy comes and tells me what real life looks like. What, is this, what does this guy even know? Jesus... As he speaks these things, says that choosing to be satisfied in those things, money, popularity, full barns, um, all the things the world promotes, getting those things is judgment in itself. H.H. Farmer said it this way, to Jesus, the terrible thing about having wrong values in life and pursuing wrong things is not that you are doomed to bitter disappointment, but that you are not. Not that you do not achieve what you want, but that you do. To be blind to what is best is a terrible thing. To settle for less is the consequence of pursuing less. When Jesus is giving these woes, he's, he's saying that the one thing that will never disappoint is a rich relationship with God. But if you choose to run after those things, if you choose to run after the fat belly, the money, the house, the popularity, he's going, the woe to you is that you get, that's all you get. Like, the money that you want, that's what you'll get. The house that you want, that, that's what you'll get. The popularity, the social networking, the likes, the thumbs up, the reposts, the retweets. Those themselves are the judgment. That is all you will get. So woe to you for not seeing what's best. See, this is, this is where the human heart goes. How dare Jesus? This is why there were people who said, Jesus, I'm not following you anymore. Because the call is not for one of power. It's one of serving. And for those of you in this world who have confused the call of Jesus to maybe what you see on television as being marketed to you as this powerful position in life, I am sorry that you have seen that. While our position does change in this life, it changes to one of servant of all. Because that's what Jesus did. This is the call of those that go with Jesus. Luke chapter 6, verse 22, just hear his words again. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? Loyalty to Christ causes us to no longer let the status quo be status quo. Guys, I I mean, it's unfortunate, but... The popularity in the world really does just reflect popularity on a high school campus, right? Like You remember being in high school, right? You remember what your high school boasted as popular, right? And why were popular kids popular? Well, it's because they did the popular thing, the most popularist, right? Popular people are not known for stirring up the status quo. Those that stir the status quo are the ones who are like, Get out! Boo! Get off the stage, son! this is the way the world operates. And when Jesus came on the scene, he flipped it. He said, my words matter more than the words of your peers, than the likes on your Facebook posts, than the retweets, and the shares. Because here's the deal, you can eat up that popularity now in the judgment And the suffering that comes with it is that is all you will get. And there comes a point in your life when you begin to go, that is not enough. And Jesus says, exactly. Exactly. As we close this morning, I hear people say the phrase, would you just say yes to Jesus? And I want to be very clear what I mean when I say that. Saying yes to Jesus means, God, I agree with you. I agree that the only way to blessing is through what you have said will bring blessing. God, I agree with you that there is no other thing or person or thought that ends with every kingdom promise that is guaranteed as mine. When I am saying yes to Jesus, I am saying I agree with your calls on everything. Now, I'm going to need some undoing. I'm going to need some time. I'm going to need to unlearn some things. But when I say yes to Jesus, I am saying, God, I agree with what you're saying. When I say no to Jesus, I am saying, God, I will go another route for blessing. We're just saying simply that I don't think that what you say is most glorious, what you say will bring me blessing, what you say will give me the kingdom. I don't agree with that. So when we say no to Jesus, that's what we're saying. We're saying, I will go another route for blessing. And Jesus says, what sorrow awaits you, the money, the full tummy, the laughter, and the applause you get from man is all that there is. Soak it up now. Because that's it. So you can stamp it across your receipt. Paid in full, you've gotten all that you're going to get. And there will come a time when you will have to consider, will I trade my crumbling castle for the kingdom? I guess my, my question to you is, are you hangry enough? See, the definition of hangry is, I'm hungry because I'm not satisfied. My, my, my glucose levels are so low that I'm so angry at everyone around me, at everything around me, because I'm so hungry and I'm not being satisfied. So the question ends up being, are you hangry enough to I just go, God, I'm fed up with all the things I'm chasing, I'm done with it, or do you go, I'm going to dig my heels in even further? And that's what it'll cause you to do, one of two ways. You will say, I am so fed up with not being satisfied by the things of this world. I'm just going to go find something else. I'm going to go find something else. I'm going to go find something else. I'm going to go find something else. Or you go, God, I'm fed up. And either you need to meet this need or there is nothing else that will. Jesus said this is who was going with him. And they were common, common people. But he gave them an uncommon task, and he marked them in an uncommon way. A disciple and a person in the crowd can hear the exact same words Jesus speaks, and they can become even more determined in the direction they're heading. And I want you to know both of those are set off on a journey of devotion. You will be devoted to one or the other, and there will be a cost for following either of those roots. The blessings of knowing that it is God alone who fills, or the woes that come with that's all you'll get. As we go to the communion table this morning, as we do every week, we are responding, coming hungry. <laughs> we are coming hungry, not just for lunch after church, but we're coming hungry, realizing that only Jesus is able to satisfy the dissatisfied heart. And you and I will find ourselves going to that place over and over and over. Not because we're like, oh, you know, I'm not satisfied. It's because I have found satisfaction and I know the source and I know the fountain and I know the banquet table. I have to sit myself at every day. That's what this time taking the bread and the juice is. It's Jesus, you died in my place so that I could have life the life that the things of this world will not make available. They can't. And when we go to this table, we're saying thank you. The, ba- the biggest thank you we can say is, ultimately, Jesus, thanks for giving up your life so that I might find real life. And so this morning, maybe you do need to spend some time repenting And when I say repenting, I mean changing your mind about the things that you have thought about as being most important and saying, God, maybe I'm putting too much weight on those things. Would you show me how to let that go just a little bit more today? Because you are so patient with me. Because I do it every week. (laughs) So maybe before you go and take this meal, before you go and take the bread and the juice, believing that the body and the blood of Christ was given for us. Maybe you just need to to spend time quietly saying, God, please show me. Show me how I'm settling for the woes and not the blessings. Father, we love you. And I ask that in these next few moments that somehow you would open our eyes to the woes that we're chasing. And God, you would meet us as hungry people. And if we are angry people because we're recognizing the pattern of our life of just keep chasing the things that don't fill, would your kindness meet us? Would you frustrate us enough by the little things we're chasing to move us inches closer to the one who does satisfy? It's in your name we pray.